Hey listeners, we've loved delving into the business of wine with you and our guests. Your feedback via email, text, social media, and by joining us on our live episodes on Clubhouse has meant the world to us, and we keep striving to do better and better. Some of you have asked on how you can help support the show. So we've decided to launch on Patreon, where your contributions can offset the cost of the show and you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. To become a patron of X Chateau, go to patreon.com slash X Chateau to lend your support starting at $5 a month. You can find the link in our show notes or on xchateau.com. We will give a shout out to all new patrons each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're talking about monopolies, not the game. We're talking about the wine monopoly of Norway. And our guest is Trond Erling Peterson, who is a category manager at Vin Monopole. Welcome to the show, Trond. Thank you so much. Really looking forward to talking to you guys. And just because I'm sure I butchered it, maybe you could uh, restate the Vin Monopole, how to pronounce it properly for our listeners. Well, in Norway, we would say Vin Monopole but it just means the wine monopoly. So you could just say that if you would like to. Perfect. And I was wondering if you give Peter and I a brief overview of your background as we get started with this interview. In terms of education, I went to advertising school and then for uh, eight or nine years, I worked as a, a journalist, a reporter for a national newspaper. But I always had this interest in food and wine. Then one day I quit my job. I started the WSET education with the level two and three. And I also started working part time in one of the Vin Monopole shops, in addition to writing freelance about food and wine. And then I secured a job in the communications department at the Monopoly. Uh, we started a podcast, amongst other things, that's uh, grown really popular in Norway. And then after a few years, I got the WSET diploma grade. And now I work as a category manager, which means that I'm responsible, uh, along with a great team of colleagues, for trying to ensure that we have a world-class selection of products for our customers. And I guess we'll talk later about how we work to achieve this. So are you going to take the big leap like Robert and I and do a near decade of self-torture with the MW? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I have a family and kids, so uh, I'll be careful not to put that on the line. But we'll, we'll see what the, the future brings, I guess. Robert and I know that that's definitely a challenge with family and kids. <laughs> yeah. So we'd love to learn more about the market for wine in Norway. I don't know if most people think of wine in Norway together necessarily, even though it's in the name of Wine Monopoly. How prevalent is wine in the daily culture of Norwegians? Well, actually, there are some trials trying to make wine in Norway as well, because climate change, it's getting hotter here as well. So some people are trying to plant Riesling and Pinot Noir, actually, in the south of Norway, but it's still very on a very small scale. I would say that wine is now equal to beer when it comes to prevalence in our daily culture. And traditionally, we're a beer and spirit producing country and drinking country. Cultural changes and traveling and an increase in income and a higher standard of living has probably changed our habits for the last decades. We enjoy wine with food like countries on the continent. But since we're not bound by tradition like France or Italy and other countries, we're very open in Norway. We're open to different styles, different origins with matching food with wine from all over the world, as well as being very open to 
new types of packaging, for instance, the bag-in-box format that's really important in Norway in terms of volume and that we adapted to very early. So wine is very common for social gatherings and for parties, along with beer and cocktails, uh, of course. So beer and spirits were the historic drinks of the Norwegians. Did wine come about as like the food culture became more international in Norway? Yeah, I would say so. It's always been part of sort of the richer people's traditions and what they picked up on their travels on the continent a hundred years ago. But then as uh, the economy grew and people started traveling abroad, we got into the habits and the traditions of the countries that we started visiting, like Spain, like Italy, France. And so uh, wine became more important. So I've been to Norway a couple of times, and I think the reputation of Oslo, which is somewhat true, although coming from San Francisco, maybe not so exacerbated anymore, but is that wine and alcohol in general in Norway is like very expensive, generally due to, I think, higher taxes. Is that true? And then does that reduce consumption of wine in Norway? Yeah, it's absolutely true that the alcohol taxes are high in Norway. And in terms of if it does reduce wine consumption, I would say yes and no. The alcohol consumption as a whole is reduced in Norway due to the higher taxes compared with the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. And this is seen as something positive. It's something that's wanted by both the government, the health organizations, the public. The idea is that we ensure a responsible consumption and a responsible sale of alcohol, and that we try to limit the harmful effects of alcohol on society by setting a high tax level, by restricting the availability, by regulating how alcohol is sold, and also by banning advertising for alcoholic beverages. So this is the same idea as the other Nordic monopolies follow in, in Sweden and Finland. So what is the tax rate? Is it unit of alcohol? Is it dollar per bottle? The alcohol tax is set by the ABV, by the alcohol content. So spirits have a higher tax level than wine that has a higher tax level than beer. If we look at wine in comparison with spirits, the system favors the lower alcohol beverages. And then spirits are even more expensive in Norway than wine. So the higher the ABV, the higher the tax. So the system is even more efficient at reducing consumption of spirits. And then it turns the consumption towards lower alcohol beverages by regulating the prices. If we look at the total alcohol consumption, then all these Nordic countries with a monopoly system have a lower consumption than other European countries, for instance. And even Denmark, who is a Nordic country but do not have a monopoly, they uh, average about 10 liters of pure alcohol per capita. Finland is nine, Sweden is seven, and Norway is around six in rough numbers. We think this is a system that works, that reduces the harmful effects of alcohol. Just out of curiosity, seasonality in terms of, because it, it can get pretty dark, in the, especially in other parts of Norway, do you see alcohol purchases by time of the year to be quite significant related to daylight? Yeah, absolutely. And related to weather, we have quite unstable weather here and very uh, obvious seasons, as you mentioned. So traditionally, of course, uh, spirits and the heavier, darker red wines are more popular in winter. And then as we approach summer, then we sell more white wines, more sparkling rosé wines. And especially rosé has had a very clear seasonality. People didn't start buying them until April, May when spring came. And then they kept buying it through summer. And then suddenly they stopped buying rosé wines in August, September when summer was passing. But this is changing. We're seeing that both sparkling and rosé wines are taking up a bigger place in the everyday drinking all year round. And as a whole, our customers are turning to a, what we call a 
lighter and brighter way of drinking. So we're moving away from the darker spirits and heavy red wines towards lighter red wines, white wines, sparkling, rosé, and spirits like gin and yeah, vodka and clear aquavits instead of the heavier uh, oak-aged spirits. But in terms of volume, like I get that the categories change throughout the year, and that's good context. But in terms of the volume, do you see the volumes significantly change in summer versus winter? No, not really. Of course, there are some seasons, and especially Christmas. So December is a huge month for us, and people uh, buy a little more than they usually do because it's the holidays and they spend it with family and they plan more ahead. And of course, in the summer, everyone has their long holiday, then people will also buy a bit more than they do in January when they want to save money after the expensive holiday period. So there's, of course, a seasonality there because of the seasons like Easter and Christmas and summer, but uh, it's pretty stable. For context, how much wine does Norway buy each year? I have the numbers for the wine monopoly sales. I'll come back to it. But uh, there's also the restaurant market that's separate from what we sell. But in the retail market, last year, we sold 96 million liters of wine, about 10.6 million nine-liter cases. And of that, over half was red wine, 53 million liters was red wine, and then about a quarter, 27 million liters white wine, 8 million liters sparkling, and 5 million liters of rosé wine. That would be considered at the retail location as opposed to the on-premise at a restaurant or bar. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's the only way to buy a bottle of wine in Norway and, and bring it home. That's to go get it at the Wine Monopoly or order it through our system and have it delivered to your home or to your post office. So there are no supermarkets that sell wine and you can't buy a bottle in a restaurant and bring it home. Then it's just for serving uh, on premise. Got it. And so what is the split between consumption at the restaurants and bars versus at retail? I'm not sure. I don't have those numbers here right now, but uh, I'm pretty sure that the vast majority is through our system, through the retail stores. Norwegians enjoy their homes. We're uh, quite a comfortable people and we don't have the same everyday restaurant culture as other countries in Europe have, like France, where uh, the family would go out and have dinner in a restaurant several days a week. We're more into staying at home, having dinner with family and friends and and buying the wine at the Wine Monopoly and drinking it at home. But of course, there's a restaurant market, but we don't go that often to restaurants compared to some other countries in continental Europe. And do Norwegians favor higher priced wines or lower priced wines? Because I know we've heard like, well, certainly like the UK market is very low price driven for the most part and Germany too, to some degree. I'm not sure how that differs in Norway. It depends. And we, of course, get all sorts of, of customers. And as a monopoly, we try to cater to everyone's needs. We have different customer groups. I would say that because of the high tax rate, uh, of course, most customers would try to find the best quality for the price. And of course, some enjoy lower priced wines. But at the same time, the Norwegian economy has been very good for decades and people have quite high salaries. So a lot of people also can afford to and are starting to see that there's a really great quality to be found if you just add a few dollars or a few kroner to, to the price. I can tell you a little about our customer groups if you want. Our research tells us that we have sort of four main customer groups that come to buy their wine and spirits and beer at the, the Wine Monopoly. And the largest one is what we call the open-minded customer. They have a certain price limit, but they're willing to spend a bit of money and they want to try something new as long as 
it's recommended by one of our staff or a friend or a journalist. They don't have uh, too much knowledge of wine, but they trust recommendations and they're open to trying something that's uh, off the beaten path. They're not the ones that spend most on wine, but they're willing to spend a bit of money as well, as long as they can feel assured. And when you say a bit of money, what does that translate to? In Norway, that would be from 150 to 200 kroner, so uh, 15 to 20 dollars. But of course, that's probably not the same kinds of wines that you would have in your market because of the differences in tax. But they would buy a dry German Riesling, a Chardonnay from France, a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc from a decent producer and not the really low-priced big brands of the world. Then we have the what we call the assured customer. These people, they really know what they want, and then they will spend what's required to get that, and they're fairly educated. And they have sort of decided what they like. They know that they like Chablis and Rye Riesling and Red Burgundy, for instance, but at the same time, they might not know that I don't like Gewürztraminer or Italian Ripasso or New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. They have very clear preferences and they follow brands to a certain extent. And then we have a slightly smaller group, about 20% of our customers that are very price focused. These customers mostly look for lower priced wines and convenience is very important to them. Ease of shopping more than educating themselves about grapes or regions or wines. And then the smallest group, about one in 10 customers, even though it's a small group, they're very important to us because they are the most dedicated customers who others tend to listen to and to look to for inspiration. Really educated customers, very interested in wine and spirits and other forms of food and drink. They seek inspiration. They're very open to quality products from off the beaten track. So they're also very willing to pay for top quality. So we have to work to have products that fit all these categories of customers. And what's interesting is that we can see that the higher end wine segment is growing. We weren't sure what to expect during the pandemic when some people, of course, lost their jobs or had less money on their hands. But it turned out that it mostly went well and most of the population of Norway had time and money on their hands, and a lot of people developed an interest for better quality wines. Collecting wines became very popular. They did wine courses online or physically, started listening to wine podcasts. So everything has been growing there. And people were probably also discovering that the quality wines you can buy at a, in a restaurant at a certain price, you can enjoy the same wine at home for a lower price. And they discovered that, and they seem to have brought those slightly more expensive habits with them as the pandemic came to an end. So we're seeing that the average price is rising for all the segments. That's great. I mean, to serve all these different customers, and you mentioned you want to have, and you do have, a very vast selection. My friend Olav once sent me the link and said, help me choose some wines. I'm like, wait, there's like a bazillion pages of wines here. How am I supposed to look through this? Are there particular regions or varietals that are popular in Norway and why would those be? For white wine, I would say the classic dry white wines, mostly from Europe traditionally, the French classics like Chablis and Sancerre, dry German Riesling, but increasingly also cool climate Chardonnay from California or the rest of the west coast of the USA, Chardonnay from Germany, from England. Wines that have really high acidity that are well adapted to what we eat a lot of in Norway, which is, of course, fish, seafood. We have a long coast. And also during wintertime, we eat these sort of hearty meat dishes with a lot of salt and fat, and they require wines with high acidity. So there's generally a high tolerance for wines with uh, clear, fresh acidity in Norway. 
And the same goes for sparkling wines. Champagne is growing, uh, UK sparkling wine, French Cremant. Prosecco used to be the go-to party and aperitif wine before the COVID pandemic, but we're not sure yet what will happen to those volumes when people now can start go partying again. The same with Cava, which was also very popular in the lower price segment. And then for red wine, if we look back 50 or 100 years, Bordeaux and Burgundy have always been available in Norway and for many years were the, the dominant styles and the only thing you could get. And then 20 years ago, these Chilean and Australian big red wines were very popular. And then there came a period of the sort of sweeter, richer Italian wines from Veneto and from Puglia and other Italian regions. Rioja was also very popular. But now for the last five to 10 years, I would say, we see that the drier, the lighter red wines in the classical styles have been dominant. So a return of the classic Burgundies and Bordeaux and even more so for Italian wines like Barbera and Nebbiolo from Piemonte in Italy. And Piemonte is now the largest red wine region in our market, even by volume. So it's uh, very popular in all segments, from the lower priced bottles and bagging boxes to the top Barolos and Barbarescos. When the red wine preferences are getting lighter, we also see Pinot Noir from the US, from England, Germany, overseas is increasingly popular. How important for the consumers in Norway is a wine, if it's organic or biodynamic or sustainable or even clean in terms of the better for you, maybe lower alcohol or maybe like tested? How important is that to your consumers? Yeah, well, for some customers, it's, uh, of course, important. We have uh, consumers who want organic and biodynamic products and also fair trade and fair for life certified, ethically certified products. So that's important to some of our uh, customers. They look for products that are made sustainably in terms of production and agriculture. And increasingly, also, some people ask for uh, lighter weight formats, lightweight bottles that help reduce the CO2 footprint. So we have a fairly educated customer in Norway, I think, and that's a, a growing segment, no doubt. And last but not least, a younger generation that's really tuning into natural wine and products that are handcrafted and with less additives and that are made in a natural way. Got it. And so in terms of, you've mentioned bag in a box several times. I'm curious on terms of the, obviously, when you talk sustainability, it's not just agriculture. It's actually packaging is a huge component in terms of that. I know that's a major concern, especially in the Nordic countries. Is that something that you're actually going to producers and requesting them to make wine in that format? We don't really have to do that anymore because the format has been so established and so popular in Norway for at least 15, 20 years. In some categories, 50 or 60% of the volume we sell is in the bag and box format. So that goes for both red wine, white wine, and increasingly also rosé wine. And as the demand is there and people are willing to pay a lot of money for a three liter bag and box if they can trust that the quality is there, Producers are really producing for the Norwegian and Nordic market from classical regions. We get Chablis, we get Sanser, we get Rosé wine from Provence. We even get Nebbiolo from Piemonte and uh, Bordeaux and uh, even red and white Burgundy in the bag and box format. So a lot of producers are still skeptical, but as long as they feel that they can sell good quality wine at a decent price and at a good volume in our market, they feel assured that it's a good thing and far less people are scared of the format now than if we compare to 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And the Norwegian importers are also sort of supporting their producers in developing the format for our market. 
the quality of the wines that are going in the bag in the box. I'm assuming there's a premiumization that's happening there too. Like we're okay. Cause we're just starting to see that here in the U S a little bit more that some people are starting to play with that. We had someone, a topless Creek who did a $95, you know, three liter box of Rose that they sold out like as a trial and sold out like in three hours. I'm curious on how are you seeing the price point of the quality of the wine going into the bag and box and how that's evolved over the last 15 years? Yeah, it's absolutely the same thing is happening here. And uh, there's a clear premiumization, as you mentioned, and people are willing to pay 500, 600 kroner, so 50 or $60 for a three liter bagging box. And suppliers are supplying uh, very good quality wines in the format. And if you think about it, it's as long as the supply chain is good, so you can put the wine in the box and you know that you can sell it in our market within a year. There's no risk of the wine going bad or anything like that. So it's an environmentally friendly format. People here think it's really practical if they go to their cabin in the mountains or out on their boat or whatever. They don't have to bring heavy glass bottles out with them or bring the empty bottles home again. So there's a sense of practicality there as well. And uh, yeah, people are trusting the quality that they're getting from the format. So yesterday I had the good pleasure to interview a winery in Argentina, Bodega Winery, and they were saying that 30% of their sales of their total sales go to Norway. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be talking with them tomorrow. They were talking about how they started with a couple of wines and just sort of like ratcheted up over time. But one of the things that they had mentioned was that when journalists, whether international or local, reviewed their wines, they saw a dramatic increase in sales. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about like, how does the journalism aspect work in terms of wines? How does that drive your purchasing decisions? And how do the points affect consumer buying behavior? Of course, as you mentioned, journalists are really important in our market because there's no alcohol advertising in Norway. So, of course, people come to our stores and then they will have uh, recommendations according to their needs. But if they want to go shopping for themselves, then the only people they can get recommendations from are the journalists who write about wine in their columns in the newspapers and online editions and blogs and, and so on. The journalists taste uh, new wines and new vintages, both with us at the Monopoly and with the Norwegian importers who supply the wines to us. And then they will write and really write about the wines that they like and that they think will uh, fit the needs of the Norwegian customers and their readers. So they are independent journalists who use normal uh, journalistic criteria for what they write about. They are free and independent and there is no advertising hidden in what they write. And of course, that's with a selection like ours. So I think we now have 32,000 products to select from. Then the customers need some guidance in such a vast selection. So they will uh, look to the newspapers and see what's recommended now for the upcoming summer season or uh, for what do they recommend for the Christmas dinner this year. And then they will bring the cutouts to our stores and look for the product. Just to reiterate on that, in terms of the journalism and the importance for the local market, is it more international? A journalist like the Venice, the wine advocate, or is it more the local commentators? For a small percentage of our customers, the collectors, then the international journalists like the wine advocate and, and Jancis Robinson and all those kinds of uh, journalists are obviously important. But for the vast majority of our customers, then it's all about the national and local uh, newspapers. So it's in the newspapers and uh, the websites they read every day, along with the news and the sports, they will also get some wine recommendations. And how important specifically are points? Do points specifically drive sales at your retail stores? 
Well, yes, at least for some customer groups and not only points, but also a slightly easier to understand system that a lot of newspaper here use. That's, uh, you know, the dices that you roll when you play board games that go from one to six. A lot of uh, journalists will, instead of the complicated 100-point scale, they will just say that this wine is uh, really good quality it uh, has a decent price. My review is that this is uh, six on the dice. And... Uh, this other wine is a horrible aftertaste and it's really too expensive. This is a one on the dice. So the scale goes from one to six. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense because it's a common thing, but I would never have thought of put that for wine. That's an interesting takeaway. And then you mentioned you have a podcast and I'm assuming there's a bunch of Norwegian wine podcasts or some. I'm curious on um, how do those help drive sales and what is the nature of Vinmopole's podcast as well? Well, because we're a monopoly, we have to treat all our suppliers and all the producers equal. So we can't mention uh, specific products or we can't come with the recommendations on specific products on our podcast. So that's more about explaining and educating people when it comes to what drinks go with what types of food, educating them about regions and grapes and uh, what's the deal with uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and what's typical for a Barbera from uh, Piemonte. But also we, of course, answer questions from our listeners, from glassware, uh, storage, all kinds of. Some reporters and journalists, newspapers also have their own podcasts that are based on the same uh, themes, but they can uh, obviously recommend certain products and that has a tendency to drive sales in, in our stores. So uh, if a certain journalist recommends the same wine again and again, then we can see it clearly in, in the sales figures. What other trends are you seeing with Norwegian wine consumers? We have actually seven main trends that we base our assortment policy on and that guide us when we make tender plans and we go through all the processes where we decide what kind of selection we can offer to our customers. The first one is what we call the known and dear, the classics, the Bordeaux, Burgundy, Rioja, Piemonte. And that also goes for beer with IPA and lager. It's sort of the return of the classic styles. An increase in price and quality and people are collecting wine and all of this is driving sales of the classic wine regions. But at the same time, a clear trend is the expanding wine world due to climate change, due to technological development and customers broadening their horizons. There's an increase in sale of wine from the UK, from Canada, and Nordic countries like Denmark and Sweden and even Norway has started uh, making wine. German Chardonnay and German Pinot Noir starting to compete with French. And also countries like Lebanon, Greece, Eastern Europe, Uruguay. So people are really broadening their horizons. And also we're seeing a move towards cooler climate regions in the established New World countries like the USA, like Australia and South Africa. People are finding very good quality wines from cooler climate regions in those countries that can rival uh, the classic European wines in terms of quality versus price. Number three is alternative packaging. As I mentioned, we have really open-minded customers in Norway. We're not bound by tradition like many other countries. So the bag-in-box, as mentioned, is 50-60% in a lot of categories. We also have a lot of wine in PET bottles, plastic bottles with a return fee. Tetra pack cartons, aluminum cans, the pouch, which is sort of like uh, the bag with inside the bag in box, but without the carton box around it, a bagnum, as it's called in the UK. <laughs> and we're seeing an increase in sales of smaller volumes, so half bottles and smaller packaging for single households or even wine tastings. 
And then there's three trends that sort of go hand in hand, and they're all about what's green and what's sustainable. Products that have a story, local authentic products that are seen as handcrafted, sustainable, traceability, ethics. There's also the green globe with customers who want products in lighter packaging to contribute to a smaller carbon footprint, but also customers who choose organic or biodynamic or natural products because they consider it to be important to preserve the environment locally or globally. And also some customers who choose organic or natural wines because they consider it to be good for their health. So uh, this also links with a growing market for vegan-friendly wine and products with no sugar, lower alcohol, zero additives with their health and their body in mind. The no-low trend, no or lower alcohol, is very present in our market as well. And alcohol-free products have seen great growth. And then the last one, trend number seven, is the newest one. It's We call it sort of the young urban customers, younger uh, people in cities and urban areas that are really into natural wine, skin contact, white wines, juicy, lighter red wines. They have a way of meeting and sharing food, uh, of eating that's more social, not as bound by tradition as uh, the older generations. They will pick and choose from food and wine from all over the world and after genuine products that are handcrafted or seen as handcrafted with uh, the Petit Naturel, uh, slightly sparkling wines and even cider and wild fermented beer and handcrafted spirits going into the same sort of trend. Tron had so much great information on the Norwegian wine market, we decided to split this into two episodes. We just heard about the Norwegian wine consumer and its trends. And in the second half, we'll be talking about how the wine monopoly operates in Norway. Stay tuned. And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.